Welcome back. It's a very uh, windy, windy day here in Wollongong. I'm recording today in my sunroom as I have half my family homesick. And I've snuck out here to um, record Chapter 5. So I'm sorry if it's a little bit more echoey than normal. I have a feeling things are starting to go downhill a little bit for Mitchell in this chapter, just judging from reading the um, chapter headings. But let's get into it, starting on February the 2nd. I left the camp with six men and four pack animals, carrying nine days' rations, and proceeded along the left bank of the newly discovered river. I found the course to be much more southward than I had expected or wished. The stream separated into branches which reunited, and the channel was, besides, crossed in many places by large trees reaching from bank to bank. After passing close by several southerly bends in following a bearing of 20 degrees south of west, I met the river crossing that line at right angles. This was at a distance of seven and a half miles from the camp, and near the point where the water broke over a rock of ferruginous sandstone, interspersed with veins of soft white clay. The rock appeared to be stratified and inclined to the northeast. At four and a half miles further, we again made the river on a bearing of south 10 degrees west after crossing a small plain and passing through a scrub of tea tree or mimosa. Two miles beyond that part of the river, we crossed a junction of a chain of ponds with it. And in proceeding on a bearing of 30 degrees east of south, we crossed, when about two miles from that junction, another chain of ponds, apparently that on which we had encamped on the 22nd of January. After riding about four miles beyond these ponds, according to the windings of the river, but chiefly towards the south, we encamped on a high point overlooking the stream and where the grass was good. We here caught a large cod perch, this being by far the best of the three cones hitherto found by us. Latitude observed 29 degrees, 12, 3 south. February 3. The course of the river compelled me to travel still further southward, which direction I accordingly pursued for 17 miles, occasionally taking slight turns southeastward in order to avoid, avoid either bends of the river or hollows containing lagoons. One of these, which we arrived at after travelling about 13 miles, was a very extensive sheet of water, a pleasing sight to us, still remembering how recently and frequently we had sought that life-sustaining element in vain. This ladder had firm banks resembling the ancient channel of a river, although the bed was evidently much higher than the water flowing in the channel we were exploring, and it was further remarkable in being contracted at one part by masses of a very hard rock, consisting of grains and small pebbles of quartz, cemented in a hard ferruginous matrix, probably feldspar. At 17 miles we entered a plain where grew trees of the acacia pendula, and we traversed it in a most elongated direction or to the southwest. On entering the wood beyond, a sudden extreme pain in my thigh made me shout before I was aware of the cause. A large insect had fastened upon me, and on looking back I perceived Souter, the doctor, defending himself from several insects of the same kind. He told me that I had passed near a tree from which their nest was suspended, and it appeared that this had been sufficient to provoke the attacks of these saucy insects, who were provided with the largest stings I had ever seen. The pain I felt was extreme and the effect so permanent that when I alighted in the evening from my horse on that leg, not thinking of the circumstance, I fell to the ground, the muscles having been generally affected. The wound was marked by a blue circular spot, as large as a sixpence, for several months. Beyond the wood, the magnificent sheet of water lay before us and extended like a noble river in a north and south direction. 
Keeping its eastern bank, I chased it southwards until I reached the termination, or rather an interval where some rocks occurred in its bed, of the same kind of the, as those last mentioned. The produce of gradual decomposition lay around the rocks, and seemed to prove that although these masses had been originally denuded by the current which formed the channel, the current had not flowed there for a very considerable time. We encamped between the two lagoons, separated by this interval and these rocks, in latitude 29 degrees, 27, 27 south. February 4. We continued along a bank of the second lagoon, which, turning towards the east, threatened to stop our progress. At length, however, we arrived at the termination of the water, and passing over the soft mud, we proceeded southward to look for the Guidi, which I knew could not be then which I knew could not then be far distant. We rode through groves of casuarina and over small plains and burnt flats. In one of the thickets, we saw two small kangaroos, the first observed since our arrival on the banks of this large river. Emus appeared to be numerous, but very wild. Pelicans abounded on the lagoons and seemed to be remarkably tame, considering the remains of them which we saw at the old fires of the natives. It was obvious on various occasions, however that the first appearance of such large quadrupeds as bullocks and horses did not scare the emu or kangaroo, but that on the contrary, when they would have run at the first appearance of their enemy man, when advancing singly, they would allow him to approach mounted and even to dismount, fire from behind a horse and load again without attempting to run off. At length we perceived that the ground sloped towards the south, and at a distance of about four miles from where we had slept, we made the guidi. The course of this river was as tortuous as at our last camp upon it, which could not be distant more than 15 or 14 or 15 miles. The volume of water was so much reduced that in the shallows where alone the current could be perceived, I could step across it. This stream could not, therefore, contribute much to that I was chasing and in search of, which I now turned westward. On this course, the windings of the Guidia often came in my way, so that I turned to the north 25 degrees east, in which direction I at length reached the large river, which had been the object of our excursion. Here it was indeed a noble sheet of water, and I regretted much that this had not been our first view of it, that we might have realised at least for a day or two all that we had imagined of the kinder. I now overlooked from a bank 70 feet high, a river as broad as the Thames at Putney, and on which the goodly waves perfectly full, free from fallen timber, danced in full liberty. A singular-looking diving bird, carrying only its head above water, gave a novel appearance to the copious reservoir, and there was a rich alluvial flat on the opposite bank. I could not, however, perceive much current in these waters, and I traced the stream downwards, anxious to discover that this breadth and magnitude continued and I was undeceived on arriving at a slight fall where the river was traversed by another rocky dike, similar to those seen higher up, and over which it fell in a small body like that in a rapid near the camp. Below this fall, the river bore no such imposing appearance, but assumed that which it wore at the various places where we had visited as its banks much higher up the stream. The meandering Guidi terminated in this river, a little way before the fall, and I could not perceive any difference in the appearance of the larger channel below that junction. Thus terminated our excursion to explore this last discovered stream, for there was no necessity for extending it further, as I could not suppose that it was any other than the Darling. Into this river we had traced the Guidi, the junction of the Namoy also could not be far distant. 
and even that of the castle ray was only about 70 miles to the southwest, which was the direction of the supposed general course of the Darling. It was probable that the streams we had now explored formed the chief sources of that river, and that we had connected its channel thus at an intermediate point with the basin of all those rivers which had been crossed by Mr Cunningham near the coast range above. It therefore remained for me only to return to the party, which had probably by that time finished the punt, and there to cross the river in order to ascertain by extending our journey the nature of the country forming the northern or northwestern side of this extensive basin. Returning towards the camp, with these intentions, we halted to pass the night by some ponds near the river, having observed the smoke of the natives' fires in the immediate vicinity. At this place, many trees bore recent marks of their stone tomahawks, and the soft banks of the river were much imprinted with their feet. Nevertheless, to our disappointment, none of the natives appeared, for a sight of our fellow men, the inhabitants of these deserts idle, had at length become a subject of considerable curiosity. Owls were numerous in these desolate regions, and I noticed many varieties. I observed two in particular of a very small description, not much larger than a thrush. It was not unusual to find them half asleep sitting on branches, from which they seldom stirred until nearly caught by the men. Rats and mice occurred in many parts under the surface in small holes, which appeared filled with seeds of grass and plants, and the scarcity of the former in some places seemed partly owing to the provident instinct of these little animals. February 5. Proceeding on a bearing of 36 degrees east of north, we made the line of marked trees at a distance of about 12 miles from the camp where Mr White remained with the party. The weather being excessively hot and our horses tired, I halted at the ponds, which had formerly enabled the party to quench their two days' thirst. Some fires of the natives were burning and three of their dogs, which were very tame, hung about our camp and would not be driven away. Feb 6. We reached the camp by 9am and I learnt that the natives had visited during my absence. Burnett, having shot a duck, was swimming for it to the middle of the river when a party of them suddenly appeared on the high bank opposite. The white figure in the water, so novel to them, continued nevertheless to swim toward the duck until he seized it, apparently to their great amusement, and they were afterwards prevailed on to cross the river. They sat down insisting that our men should sit also. They talked very much and laughed at many things. They had taken their seats in a place exposed to the sun's rays and from this they did not stir until they had by signs expressed their wish to remove, which they then did under the shade of a tree. At length they ventured to walk about the tents and they then insisted on presenting their clubs and warmers to our men. None of the names which we had written down from Barber's statements seemed at all familiar to their ears, but Mr White obtained a vocabulary which shewed that their language was nearly the same as that of the Aborigines at Walmore, and the only difference being the addition of na to each noun as na mil for mil, the eye, etc. They were much disposed to steal Mr White. They were much disposed to steal. Mr White observed one to purloin a teacup from his canteen and conceal it very cleverly in his kangaroo cloak. Another, notwithstanding the vigilance of our men, had nearly got off with the carpenter's axe. They looked rather foolish when Mr White managed to shake his teacup from the cloak. The number of our party seemed an object of their attention and they explained by pointing in the direction in which I had gone and by holding up seven fingers our number that we had not gone down the river unobserved by them. They did not appear to be acquainted with the use of bread, but they well understood the purpose of the boat, 
And when Kalide, the sea, was pronounced to them, they pointed in the direction of Morton Bay, repeating frequently the word Wollongall. They immediately recognised Whiting, the top sawyer at the pit, and was obvious by their imitating, as soon as he appeared, the motions of soaring and pointing at the same time to him. They seemed rather struck with the thickness of his wrists. Indeed, they took some interest in comparing their limbs with those of the party. One man had hairs and features very different from those of his companions, the hair being parted on the forehead, long and not curled. A sailor of our party thought he resembled a Malay. On the discharge of our double barrel, they seemed much terrified and soon retired, making signs that they should return and by gestures invited some of the men across the river with them. Two tomahawks was presented to them, and one of their number was dressed out with old clothes. Their name for the river was understood to be Kerala. This interview took place on the day previous to my return to the camp. The boat was already in the water and everything packed up for the purpose of crossing the river when Mr Finch approached the camp and I hastened to congratulate him on his opportune arrival. But he told a dismal tale. Two of his men having been killed and all the supplies, cattle and equipment having fallen into the hands of the natives. This catastrophe occurred at the ponds of Gorulai, between Mount Fraser, beyond Mount Fraser, which Mr Finch had reached after having been distressed even more than our party after having been distressed even more than our party had been in the same place for want of water. This privation had first occasioned the loss of his horse and several other animals, so that his party had been able to convey the supplies to these ponds by carrying forward from the dry camp only a portion at a time on the two remaining bullocks. Mr Finch at length succeeded in thus lodging all the stores at the ponds, but being unable to move them further without the assistance of my cattle, he left them there and proceeded forward on foot along our track with one man, in expectation of falling in with my party at no great distance in advance. After ascertaining that we were not so near as he hoped, and having reached the Gwydi and traced our route along its banks until he again recognised Mount Fraser, he returned at the end of the second day when he found neither his tents nor his men to receive him, but a heap of various articles such as bags, trunks, harness, tea and sugar canisters, etc., piled over the dead bodies of his men, whose legs he at length perceived projecting. The tents had been cut in pieces, tobacco and other articles lay about, and most of the flour had been carried off, although some bags still remained in the cart. The two bullocks continued feeding near. This spectacle must have appeared most appalling to Mr Finch, uncertain as he must have been whether the eyes of the natives were not then upon him, while neither he nor his man possessed any means of any defence. Taking a piece of pork and some flour and a haversack, he hastened from the dismal scene and by travelling all day and passing the nights without fire, he most providentially escaped the natives and had at length reached our camp. Thus terminated my hopes of exploring the country beyond the Karola. It's K-A-R-A-U-L-A. And I could not but feel thankful for the providential circumstance of Mr Finch's arrival at that very moment. I was about to proceed on the undertaking, trusting that I should find and return to this depot the supplies which I expected him to bring. We had now, on the contrary, an additional demand on our much-exhausted stock of provisions. The season, when rain might be expected, was approaching, and we had behind us 200 miles of country subject to inundation without a hill to which we could, in such case, repair. The soil was likely to become impassable after two days' rain and our cartwheels were 
presented by the carpenters to be almost unserviceable. These considerations and the hostile disposition of the natives in our rear not only deterred me from crossing the Corolla, but seemed to require my particular attention to the journey homewards. We had at least accomplished the main object of the expedition by ascertaining that there was no truth in the bushranger's report respecting the Great River. February 7. The wheels of the carts requiring repair before we could commence our retreat. The carpenters were employed on this work until 3pm. Our boat, emblem of our hopes, was sunk in the deepest part of the Corolla. The natives were heard approaching during the morning and crows and hawks hovering in the air marked their place in the woods. At length I perceived them peeping at us from behind trees, but our feelings toward the Aborigines were very different then from what they had been before we received the news brought by Mr Finch, however innocent these people might be of the murder of his men. I did not therefore invite their approach, but they were too ca- and they were too cautious to be intrusive. The wheels being repaired at 3pm, we turned our faces homewards, and at exactly sunset we reached the ponds where I had twice previously encamped. February 8. In our line of route back to the Gwydi, we knew by experience that no water was to be found. The distance to that river from our present camp was 23 miles, but I considered it better to cross this dry tract by a forced march in one day than to pass a night without water. By this arrangement, we could halt on the river during the day following to recover and refresh the cattle after so long a journey. We were accordingly in motion at half past 5am, and the early part of the morning being rather cool, we we got forward very well. After midday, the weather was very hot. At 4pm, the bush of one of the wheels was became so loose that the cart fell down and it was necessary to repair the wheel before it could proceed. Mr White undertook this with the aid of some of the men while I continued the journey with the rest, and it may be imagined how cleverly the work was done from the fact that my zealous assistant overtook us with the cart before we reached the end of the day's journey. We perceived smoke arising before us when we had arrived within six miles of our old encampment on the Gwydir, and soon after we found the grass burning on both sides of our line of route, which should be observed had been marked by us throughout on advancing into this country, not only by the wheel tracks in the soft soil, but also by chipping the trees on both sides with an axe. We now found the track of wheels almost obliterated by the prints of naked feet, as if a great number had followed us, or rather Mr Finch. A long-continued cooey was at length heard at a distance, apparently the signal of our arrival, and from the confused sounds which followed and the smoke ascending in various places, it was evident, evident that a numerous tribe was awaiting us. The wearied cattle reached the river just after the sun had gone down. The crossing place was extremely bad and the poor cattle had accomplished a wonderful day's work. Nevertheless, I considered it necessary whatever efforts it might cost us to encamp on the other side. That bank afforded an admirable position on which I could with safety halt the next day and guard our cattle with a fine turn of the, within a fine turn of the river, whereas the side on which we were was particularly exposed to annoyance if the natives became troublesome and it did not command any favourable run for the cattle, which might thus have strayed back towards the corolla. A lightest cart, which was the first, stuck fast in the bed of the river, the tired bullocks being unable to draw it further. The moon was about five days old, and with the assistance of its light, everything was carried across by the men so that by nine o'clock we had established our camp where I wished, the empty carts alone remaining on the bank which we had left. 
The party had been travelling and working hard without intermission during 16 hours. Some meant not having even breakfasted. But the next morning unveiled to them more clearly the advantages gained by these exertions. February 9. I was awoke by the shouts of a numerous tribe of natives, and on going out of my tent I found that they had covered the opposite bank to the water's edge. They stood on our empty carts in scores like so many sparrows on a very old tree or stump likely to afford them a better view of my camp. But I overlooked them completely, and as they became more and more vehement in their language and gestures, the greater was our satisfaction in being on the right side of the river. What they did say, we could not guess, but by their loud clamour and gestures, all the leading men seemed to be in a most violent passion. One word, only they knew of the language spoken by our stockmen, and that was budgery, or good, and this I concluded that they had learnt at some interview with Dawkins, who used it ever and anon in addressing them. They were handling everything attached to our empty carts, but some of our men went over to prevent any serious injury being done. All the clamour seemed directed at me, and being apparently invited by signs to cross to them, I went to the water's edge, curious to know their meaning. They then assumed the attitudes of the corroboree dance and pointed to the woods behind them. Come and be merry with us, in inverted commas, was thus plainly enough said, but as their dance is warlike and exciting, being practised by them most when tribes are about to fight, they must either have thought me very simple, or as seems most likely the invitation might be a kind of challenge, which perhaps even a hostile tribe dared not in honour decline, whatever the consequences might be. These natives were the finest-looking men of their race which I had seen. The peculiar colour of their bodies, covered with pipe clay, gave them an appearance of being dressed. They were in number about a hundred, all men or boys the strongest carrying spears. None of the words of the barber seemed at all intelligible to them, but on mentioning the Namoy, they pointed to the southwest, which I knew was the direction in which the riv that river was nearest to the camp. I recognised the gigantic pipe-clayed man who had presented his spear to me when we first reached the Gwydion much higher up. That he was the man I then met, he clearly explained to me by assuming the same attitude and pointing eastward to the place. A good deal of laughter, partly feigned, I believe, on both sides, seemed to soften the violence of their speech and action. But when I brought down a tomahawk and was about to present it to the man whom I had formerly met, and who was the first to venture across, their voices arose with tenfold fury. All directed my attention to a dirty-looking man who accordingly waved, waded through the water to me and received my present. Several other stout fellows soon surrounded us, and with the most overbearing kind of noise began to make free with my person and pockets. I was about to draw a pistol and fire it in the air when White, mistaking my intention, observed that their vehemence probably arose from their impatience at our not understanding them, which I thought was very likely. They repeated so incessantly the word einer, E-I-N-E-R, that I ran up the bank for my book, remembering to have seen the word, and then I found that it meant a gin or female, as will appear on referring to the vocabulary I obtained at Walmore. The translation of this word produced a hearty laugh among our men, and Finch dryly observed that some would be very serviceable. I was in doubt whether they meant to inquire by frequently pointing up to our tents if we had any, or whether they wished to accommodate us with wives. 
At length, they rather suddenly drew together on the bank, again making signs of the corroboree dance, beckoning to summon the men to go with them and expressing their intention to depart, but to return again to sleep there by saying, Nangari, and pointing to the ground. This I understood clearly, and very soon they all disappeared. Fortunately, none ascended the banks to our tents, as it was not desirable that they should know our numbers exactly. It did not appear that they understood the nature and effect of firearms. Meanwhile, our wheels had been found so frail that we must have halted here under any circumstances in order to strengthen them for the tough work we were, they were to encounter. The carpenters therefore worked hard at them this forenoon. In thus returning, I gathered for my friend Mr. Brown a hortus of such plants as appeared new to me, the field of research being obviously at this time confined to our line of route. As soon as the natives were gone, I set all hands except the carpenters to extricate the cart still in the bed of the river, and it was at length brought up the bank. We next yoked the bullocks to the empty drays and cart on the opposite side, and all were soon brought safely through the river. I preferred doing this work when the natives were absent, because I did not wish them to see the difficulties which the passage of a river occasioned to us. When the sun was near setting, the voices of our unwelcome visitors were again heard, and they soon appeared gaily painted white for the corroboree. But foreseeing this return, I had forbidden the men from looking towards them, and in order to discourage their approaches still more, I directed the doctor to pace backward and forward on the bank before our tents with a firelock on his shoulder and the calm air of a sentinel, but without noticing the natives opposite. They accordingly also kept back, although one of them crossed to the bullock driver who was alone, watching the cattle on our left, and endeavoured to persuade him to go over the river with him. The whole at length disappeared without further parley. Under, the, under any other circumstances, I should certainly have been willing to have met their civilities, at least halfway, but recent events had weakened our confidence in the natives. When night came on, we saw their fires behind the trees at a little distance from the river, and we also heard their voices, but to complete the effect of our coolness in the evening, which certainly must have puzzled them, considering our kindness in the morning, I sent up a rocket after which their fires disappeared and we heard their voices no more. February 10. From this camp, the first day's journey homeward along our old track was parallel to the river. The second left its banks and led in a southeast direction to Rodrigo Ponds, where we had encamped on the 17th of January. On emerging from the wooded margin of the river this morning, I struck into a new direction, leaving the natives to believe that we still followed the beaten track towards our old camp on the Gwydir, where they would no doubt await us that evening, while we pursued the bearing of 64 degrees east of south in hopes to pass a quiet night at Rodrigo Ponds, thus stealing a march upon them, a manoeuvre which we successfully accomplished. After proceeding some miles in the new direction, we found some very bad swampy ground before us. It was covered with holes brimful of water, and we at length arrived where long reeds grew in extensive patches. The inequalities of the surface owing to these holes required the nicest care in conducting the carts between them. After the freak, but after frequent halts, I was glad to back out of this swamp and only regained the firm ground by considerable turnings and windings. We were not far probably from the Namoi in that reedy region, but it might have been very extensive. On regaining... Its eastern skirts, I resumed the course pursued in the morning and passed through a tract where the grass and trees were, to a considerable extent, on fire. At length, however, we recognised the park-like scenery 
which we had formerly crossed, and with no small pleasure, again we fell in with our former track, at a distance of about three miles short of our old camp at Rodrigo Ponds. While I stood near this spot awaiting the arrival of the party, which was still at some distance, I overheard a female singing. The notes were pleasing and very different from the monotonous strains of the natives in general. Just there, I had been admiring the calm repose of the surrounding landscape, gilded by the beams of a splendid setting sun, and anticipating a quiet night for the party. The soft sounds, so expressive of tranquility and peace, were in perfect unison with the scene around. Nothing could have been more romantic, nevertheless, I could most willingly have dispensed with the accompaniment at that time, so associated were all our ideas of the natives with murder and pillage. When my men came up, I directed them to give a hurrah in hopes that it would put the party, whoever they might be, to flight. Yet after a cheer about as rough as English throats could well utter, the sweet strain to my surprise continued and bade the lovely scenes at distance hall, in inverted commas. But this was not the song of hope, but of despair, at least so it sounded to me under the circumstances, and so it really proved to be, as I afterwards ascertained. Men's voices were also heard as we proceeded quietly to our old ground, and I could not help regretting that after having given the natives at the Gwydi the slip and seen no others the whole day, we should again find the very spot on which we were to pass the night preoccupied by natives. Our party set up their tents and the song ceased, but I proceeded with Mr White towards the place whence the voices came. We there saw several persons amid smoke, and apparently regardless of our presence, indeed their apathy as compared with the active vigilance of the natives in general was surprising. A young man continued to beat out a skin against a tree without caring to look at us, and as they made no advance we did not go up to them. Mr. White, on visiting their fires, however, at 10pm, found that they had decamped. All this seemed rather mysteriousness until the nature of the song I had heard was explained to me afterwards at Sydney by the bushranger when I visited him in the hulk on my return. He then imitated the notes and informed me that they were sung by females when mourning for the dead, and he added that on such occasions it was, was usual for the relatives of the deceased to seem inattentive or insensible to whatever people might be doing around them. At the time, however, this behaviour of the natives only made us more on our guard and impressed the men with a sense of the necessity for vigilance, especially during the night when a watch was set on the cattle and two men guarded the camp while the rest of us slept with their arms at hand. This day, two of the dogs fell behind and as a whole were miserably poor. We at first supposed that they had died from exhaustion. But as the weaker of the two came up to us in the evening, it appeared then more probable that the dogs had been detained by the natives who might be following our track and that this one had escaped from them. February 11. On the march this morning, we lost an excellent little watchdog named Captain by the bite of a snake. While the other dogs with the party grew more skeletons, Captain continued in good case, having fared very well on the rats, mice and bandicoots, etc., which he, under the direction of the doctor who shared the prey, had the sagacity to scrape out of the earth. Captain was also a formidable enemy to lizards, but this morning his owner found him engaged with a venomous reptile known in the colony by the name of Deaf Adder. And although compelled instantly to let it go, it was too late for poor Captain stretched out his legs and expired on the spot, having already been bitten by the poisonous reptile. We repassed this day the place where only I had seen the bush of the interior, 
the stenoculus stenoculus maculatus. It grew to the height of about four or five feet, and we found the fruit and flower on the same twig. Numerous small birds with red bills flew about these bushes, and we found slightly attached to the tender top twigs their tiny nests in great numbers, some containing eggs. No instinctive sagacity such as we perceive in birds elsewhere to conceal their nests was here apparent, nor was it required, but such nests must have fallen in easy price even to very little boys, had there been any, so that the security these birds enjoyed seemed truly characteristic of the desert and absence of birds of prey. The party arrived at the old camp by Pelican Ponds early in the day. Here... As the men were growing weak, I found it necessary to restore to them the full allowance of rations, especially as they could no longer derive any support from the hope of making great discoveries, for no travellers could have felt more zealous in the cause than these poor fellows had done throughout the journey. February 12. On our way to the next encampment was long and great part of the... February 12. Our way to the next encampment was long and great part of the ground full of holes and unfavourable for travelling. Indeed, I considered it the worst portion of country intervening between us and the Liverpool range. This was precisely where the effect of rainy weather on soil was to be most dreaded and after having been so long exposed to be cut off in these low levels from any higher ground by floods. The lowering character of the sky, now that we were about to emerge, only rendered me more impatient to see the hills again. We accordingly set off at a very early hour, and after travelling seven miles, we halted for ten minutes to water the cattle at some ponds where, as the weather was uncommonly warm, the men were also refreshed with some lime juice mixed with the water. The cattle came on steadily afterwards, notwithstanding the heat. The blue summit of Mount Riddle at length arose above the horizon and was a welcome sight as the site of land after a long voyage. When we had proceeded about halfway to the next camp, we discovered that we were followed closely by a numerous tribe of natives. One of our men, having dropped behind, fell in with them and was nearly detained by a fellow who flourished a large iron tomahawk over his head. Another of our party who came in contact with a native and who requested him by signs to come to me understood him to express by similar means his intention to go northward. The main body, however, amounting to 100 or upwards, continued to move parallel to our route and in lines of twos or threes. Fortunately, we were approaching the open plains where I knew I could, we should be comparatively secure from any treacherous assaults, and it was therefore probable that they would not follow us so far. We were advancing, however, towards those who were feasting on my supplies not far from the base of the mountain cone, which was then our landmark. The natives were not unlikely to be formidable enemies encouraged by their late success, and with such prospects before us, it was by no means agreeable to be thus followed in rear by others. I was accordingly much inclined to question the intentions of these if they continued to accompany our party beyond the woods. As we approached the plains, we perceived the fire and smoke before us on the banks of the large lagoon where we, to, where we were to encamp and on an angle of ground where our passage was confined between the lagoon and a narrow muddy channel from the east, we saw seven new but deserted huts which had been erected on our track as if to watch our approach. On reaching them we found one large hut in the centre and the others arranged in a semicircle around it 
the whole being of a very substantial construction and neatly thatched with dry grass and reeds. We arrived at our old ground after a journey of nine hours, which was the time exactly in which we had traversed the same distance. Our tents now commanded a view of the open plains between us and the woods from which we had at length emerged. The bold outline of the Nandawa range in the opposite direction was a comfortable prospect for us, although we were still to investigate the particulars of the tragedy which had been acted at their base. A very hot wind blew strongly in the afternoon and I was prepared to advance towards the natives had they followed us into the plain. Mr White in the meantime kept a sharp lookout, but the natives prudently remained within their woods. At the lagoon, we again found the beautiful crested pigeon, which seemed peculiar to these parts, as on both occasions we had only seen it here and only in this vicinity. The remarkable tree on which the fruit had been before abundant bore now, with the exception of a young crop, one solitary specimen, the rest having been pulled and eaten by the natives, as appeared from the stones which lay about. That single specimen could only be preserved in a drawing, and this I made as well as a very high hot wind and our critical situation with respect to the natives permitted. And that's the end of chapter five.